You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. If you're on your phone or your tablet, we use the ESV. And if you'd like a Bible, you can raise your hand. Andrew will, will bring you one. So just sort of convictionally, I spend a lot of time not sitting at my desk, not in my office. I spend as much time as, as possible out in the community. And there's some intentionality behind it because I like to go to the same restaurants and the same coffee spots. Uh, I write my sermon every week at the same table in this little spot in town on Thursdays. Two weeks ago, I actually was at a conference, which uh, took me out of town, so I wasn't at my spot on Thursday, and one of the workers texted me to make sure I was still alive, and so, uh, yeah. Like, when I go to the grocery store, I try to go to the same checkers, and I do this in order to get to know people and to try to build a relationship with people in the hopes of getting to share Christ with people. And so over time, I've just had the opportunity to, to pray with people and to love on people and to encourage people and to talk about the faith with people. So one of the common things I hear when talking about the faith with people is that many view Christianity as a set of rules to follow. Like a list of rules, a list of do this, don't do that. And even in the gospel-centered life book that we're going through in some of our community groups, it says that believers also struggle with this too. Like sometimes we look at our growth in Christ as things we should be doing, or we ought to be here in our relationship with Jesus. But Jesus isn't after our behavior. Jesus is actually after our hearts. And so when we operate out of this place of trying to be good enough, or trying to do enough, or trying to follow all the rules, we miss the beauty of the gospel to us. Tim Keller released a book in, in 2008 that, that I think you all should read. And since I think you all should read it, I bought five copies, and they're on the resource wall out there in the hallway. Um, the book is called The Reason for God. Uh, and, it, and it says that the gospel contains the resources to building a unique identity. The Christian gospel, Tim Keller says, that says that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and so valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. And this leads to a deep humility and a deep confidence at the same time. Church, the gospel is not a set of rules to follow. It's not a set of responsibilities to be fulfilled. It is good news for you to believe. The good news is that the work has been done for you through Jesus. You can't be good enough. You cannot do enough in order to be right and just before a just and holy God. But Jesus, Jesus has done the work necessary for you to be made right with God. And despite your unworthiness, and despite our helplessness, Jesus died in our place. And now we're counted worthy in Christ. And with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus as our backdrop, 
for this text this morning, Paul calls the Philippians to action. And this is good news to you. When applied to your heart, this leads to worship, and this leads to delight in Christ, and this impacts how we live. So I want to call you to consider that this morning. Are you living a life worthy of the calling that you have received, Christian? Do you believe the good news of Jesus to you? Let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our need for you. Lord, I thank you for our kids in the back. Thank you for the many blessings you've given us. Lord, thank you for your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection, your ascension. Lord, by it we have life and we have life abundantly. And so may we just rest in that. Lord, may our strivings to be good enough, to be earners of grace, may all those strivings just cease in light of the cross and resurrection of Jesus this morning. Lord, we love you. Show us our need for you this morning. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. All right, Philippians 1. Uh, we're going to begin today in verse 27. Uh, the first half of Philippians 1.27 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul has moved from talking about his imprisonment, his present situation, and his thoughts on the future, and he begins his exhortation to this church in Philippi. This section begins here and runs through verse 18 of chapter 2. And verse 27 sort of stands out as the topic sentence of the rest of the section. Paul writes this letter to a church, meaning he's writing this letter to believers in Jesus who have been called together into a local body as an expression of the universal church of redeemed believers. So Paul is writing this letter to exhort believers in Philippi, meaning he is writing this letter to Christians, and so this ought to encourage us. Paul is writing this letter to this church because they have been changed by the gospel of Jesus, and that is true of you as well. If you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you have been changed. And therefore, you have the power of God inside of you by his indwelling Holy Spirit to live a life worthy of being called a son or a daughter of Jesus. You don't have to strive to earn God's acceptance. You don't have to strive to earn God's love because it's already yours. It's already been given to you because Jesus went to the cross. But now... You are called to live a life with the help of the Holy Spirit that is consistent with what you claim to believe. When, Jesus, or when Paul says only, he's serving, this is serving as a warning. Sort of like he's saying, hey, keep this one thing in mind. And when I was reading that text, I started thinking about my mom when I read it. Uh, and not in a bad way at all, but... My mom cared a lot about me in high school, and she cared a lot about what I did and didn't want me to make dumb choices. 
And so almost every time I'd leave the house, especially if she thought I was going to hang out with a girl, she would say, hey, remember who you represent. And this is Paul saying the same thing. He is calling the Philippian church as believers in Jesus to represent Jesus. Believer, you show what you think about Jesus, not only by what you say, but also by how you live. Christian, the gospel shapes your life. The Greek word that Paul employs here says citizens. He's saying that we are to live as worthy citizens of the kingdom of God. This is something that the Philippian church would resonate with because they were living in this Roman outpost, and so they prided themselves on being like citizens of the most powerful nation on the earth at the time. And so Paul is telling them first and foremost that their citizenship... Their first loyalty belongs to God. And because of this, because it belongs to God, because he is the rightful ruler of the world, Paul is calling this church to be markers or outposts for the kingdom of God. So like when unbelievers would come into a church, Paul is encouraging them, and the same is true of us. When unbelievers come into our fellowship, they ought to see a glimpse of God's kingdom on earth as we seek to make known and, and seeing what the future coming kingdom will look like. So Paul then expounds on what living worthy looks like within the church. Let's pick it back up in verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened... In anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul gives us two word pictures here. When he says stand firm, he's calling our attention to soldiers in a battle. And when he says strive side by side, you may picture athletes on a team. And all of this is a call to unity. Unity in a church must characterize believers. He tells us to stand firm in one spirit and to stand firm with one mind. Paul is telling us to have a unified calling and a unified loyalty to one another as brothers and sisters. So think about it this way. Think about soldiers. Anybody in here like war movies? Like, I, yeah, I do too. In any good war movie, the... Guy that gets capped first is the guy that disobeys orders. Or he's the guy that tries to usurp authority. Or he's the guy that forgets his orders. But on the battlefield, survival and victory depend on unity of mission with your fellow soldiers. And survival and victory also depend on courage and confidence when you're engaging the enemy. And the same is true in sports. Patrick Mahomes is a great quarterback. But what would happen if his offensive line just one day decided they weren't going to block for him? Or his receivers decided one day that they didn't want to catch the passes he threw to him? They'd lose every game. 
It takes a team effort striving towards the same goal. And Paul says the goal for believers is faith in Christ. So that's one reason why we push community so hard here. And one reason why we're encouraging discipleship within community. Because we cannot grow into who God is calling us to be completely or fully apart from God and apart from the body. And when we can't be united in faith and mission, when we aren't working together for the goal of growing in Christ and seeing believers and our unbelievers come to faith in Jesus, our goal and our mission is severely stunted. In the time that Paul was writing this to the Philippians, they were being attacked for their faith. We're not sure to what extent, but it is certainly, though, likely and not limited to social pressures from their pagan neighbors, which I think we can all probably relate to in some way. I don't think we feel it the same way that the Philippians are feeling it, because most of us probably aren't ridiculed for our faith, but I do think socially we feel it, or at least socially maybe we're beginning to feel it, as the world pushes an agenda on us that is contrary to the Scriptures. Or even, just personalize it even a little bit more, even maybe you're fearful of people's perception of you. And so maybe you're afraid to confront sin in the lives of your friends or your family members or in culture for fear of how they'll respond to you. Paul is telling these Christians to not be afraid. Don't be afraid of these opponents. It's an invitation to stand firm in the face of intimidation and in the face of opposition because of the salvation that you have received. All of Paul's warnings and exhortations are rooted in what God has done for us. He says, stand firm in the face of your opponents because of your salvation. Because of your salvation, you can stand firm. And your salvation is from God. So we're called then to remind one another and ourselves of the gospel. These do's and do nots of scripture are all rooted in the gospel of Jesus. And that is that we have a God that sees us. And we have a God that loves us. And we have a God that cares for us. And we have a God that wants us. And because of this, we can stand firm in the face of temptation to sin. And we can stand firm in the face of opposition and ridicule. And, and this is very important, we don't have to stand firm alone. We get to stand firm together with other believers as members of a local church together. And we are to stand firm by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us as believers. And we can stand firm fearlessly because our greatest problem of sin and death has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. You don't have to fear condemnation because Jesus has accepted you. And really and truly... That's the only thing that really matters in this life is that we've been accepted by Christ. 
if we live lives in view of our salvation, then we're set free from fear. We're set free from fear of man. We're set free from guilt. We're set free from shame. We're set free from condemnation because Christ accepts us. The way we stand firm in the face of opposition is a missional moment for the church. Tony Marita says it like this. He says that when Christians are standing together in the face of external pressure, something is happening. It's a sign given. It's a two-way sign. It's a sign pointing to destruction and salvation. It's a sign pointing to confrontation and confirmation. It's a sign pointing to judgment and assurance. Unbelievers are confronted with their unbelief and their impending judgment if they don't believe. Believers have a word of confirmation as God assures them in the struggle that they really are God's people and that they will be saved on the last day. Paul then moves to two gifts of this salvation. Philippians 1, 29-30 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but should also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The two gifts are belief, meaning faith, and suffering. So I think it's easy to see salvation as a gift, right? When you understand just how sinful we really are, what is amazing is that God would be willing to save anybody. That's a gift. But Paul also says suffering is a gift. And maybe you're like, I don't think so, Paul. But remember, the goal of our faith is not our comfort. It's not our happiness. It's not even heaven. That's a good goal. Heaven is is nice and praiseworthy, but the goal is Christ, and the goal is Christ's honor, and the goal is Christ's glory. So Paul says that faith has been granted to us, and also suffering has been granted to us. Paul says it's been granted to you by grace, by the grace that has been granted to you. Grace means God's divine favor. Undeserved grace. Us getting what we don't deserve. We get Christ and all of his blessings to us in spite of our sin. Grace through faith in Christ brings about our salvation and transforms our lives. As our guilt and our sin and our treasonous rebellion is transferred onto Jesus as if we had never sinned. Our trust moves from ourselves and our good works, and our achievements, and our accomplishments, and is anchored in the finished good work of Jesus on our behalf. It is through Christ's suffering that he brings us into the kingdom of God through himself. And now, God has granted that Christians suffer with him and for his sake, in order that God would be glorified in and through our lives. God is glorified in us when we endure in him. And God is glorified in us through his Holy Spirit that confronts us in times of struggle and suffering. It is grace that silences our fears before those who oppose us.
And it is grace that silences our doubts. And it is grace that shatters our pride and counts us worthy to suffer alongside of Jesus who has suffered for us. If you're a believer and you're suffering, it does not mean that God has abandoned you. And it does not mean that God is angry with you. Rather, suffering as a Christian is a sign that God is with you and that God is for you and that you belong to Jesus. Our faith was granted to us by him. We believe because of the Holy Spirit's work in us. We don't even have to strive to believe or feel a certain kind of way, but simply to remind ourselves that we belong to Christ. So in the midst of pain and suffering, preach the gospel to yourself, that Christ loves you and has endured the cross for you and has been raised, and through his Holy Spirit given to you, you are then set free, and now you can rest and delight in him. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, you are no longer a slave, but you are free. You are no longer held captive by your fear or by your sin, but by his mercy you have been rescued and redeemed. And a brief caveat, if I may. Sometimes we suffer because our view of the cross is too low. Sometimes we suffer because we don't fully believe the gospel and his promises to us. So in those moments, then, we end up resisting God and his kindness to us. Some of you suffer because you're disobedient to the word of God. Some of you may feel like your life is constantly in chaos and in disarray. And I would just ask you if you are living a life devoted to Jesus. This type of suffering ought to remind you that you belong to Christ. And the Father then disciplines those that he loves. If you aren't walking with Jesus and you claim to be a Christian and your life is a mess, this suffering is a mercy to you. Because this kindness, this is the kindness of the Lord showing you that you cannot handle this life on your own. And you can't handle this life apart from him and apart from the body of Christ. Your suffering as a wayward believer is meant to bring you to the end of yourself as the Lord is after your heart not your behavior modification. It's the kindness of the Lord that brings you to repentance. So give him your heart. Repent of your sins. Believe in the gospel. I can't promise you that your suffering is going to just immediately stop. But I can assure you that the Lord is with you and that the Lord fights your battles. And you have a family that wants to link arms with you and carry you through to the end of the race. 
Paul tells us, and Paul tells this church that they are co-sufferers with him, with Paul. And therefore, we are co-sufferers with Jesus. And what a privilege. What a privilege to get to have our identity in Christ as his sons and daughters who are then considered worthy of this mission. Paul has given us this formula now on how to deal with external pressure. And that's through unity. And in order to withstand persecution, then we are to be united in our mission and in our perseverance. And we're to be united in our calling in and through the gospel of Jesus. And now Paul shifts from talking about external pressure to like internal friction. So this is another place where uh, the one another's of scripture are implied. Philippians 1, 27 through 30, Paul has emphasized the need for fearless courage, and now he's going to emphasize our relationships to one another within the church. Paul has told us to be courageous in the face of opposition, and now he's going to encourage compassion towards one another. This, then, is how we're going to live lives worthy of the calling of the gospel. Let's look at Philippians 2, verse 1 and 2 together. Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is another call to oneness. This is a call to unity. Paul opens with a series of if statements. These aren't conditional statements, but rather these if statements are downright certainties. Some translations use the word since instead of if. And so the implication is that because of these things, because of these if statements, it's that there should be a motivation, as Paul appeals, for all divisiveness and strife to cease within the church. So let's look at each of these one by one. If there is any encouragement in Christ, Christians, you have the blessing of knowing Christ. And not only do we know Christ, but more importantly, Christ knows us. And we are found in him. We have been given faith, So we can endure because we have a relationship with Jesus. And that leads us then to comfort from love that is given to us through Christ and is evidenced through Christ's obedience to die in our place. He is ours. We are his. Comfort of of love. If there's any comfort of love. From Christ as the source, we have comfort from the love we have received from Christ. And this is also the love that we have for one another. Paul in chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8 says that this is the love that Paul has for the church. And that is the same affection that Christ has for us. So because of the comfort we have from Christ's love, we know God's love to us. And that leads us then to love for one another. So if there's any participation in the Spirit, 
or rather fellowship with the Spirit. This means that the Spirit unites us to God and to one another in fellowship and in partnership with one another in the gospel. The Spirit also intercedes for us. The Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. And through the Spirit of God, we can worship God. Paul writes this letter to this church because as we will see in chapter 4, disunity is threatening to break this church apart. And so Paul is reminding them of the fellowship that they have that is given to them by faith in God and sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And this encouragement, this love, this fellowship with God through the Spirit of God leads to affection and compassion and mercy for one another. As we are united to Christ, we are reminded of the compassion and affection that God has for us. And that's evidence through the cross. We then, as recipients of this mercy, are then called to mercy for one another. And this looks like grace and mercy and forgiveness, the same kind that Jesus has for us towards each other. And this leads to sacrificial service for one another. Paul then gives us the only imperative in, verse, in these four verses, and that's to complete my joy. Paul says, complete my joy. Fulfill my joy. This isn't Paul being self-centered but rather calling us to consider that our joy is tethered to the gospel of Jesus. Apart from Christ, there is no encouragement. There is no lasting love. There is no comfort from the Holy Spirit. There is nothing real or lasting apart from Jesus. So he's calling this church to be united, not just relationally, but theologically. And when there is disagreement over secondary issues, to not fight about them, but to love one another. This type of love and agreement for and with one another will fulfill Paul's joy, he says. So the question for us today is, do you take this type of unity seriously? Are you willing to defer to one another? And are you willing to sacrifice for the growth in Christ for one another? Are you willing to set aside your preferences for the sake of the gospel? Through Paul's life, we see that his own experience is an example of this. We see Paul showing us that there is joy that isn't tied to our circumstances, but is richer and deeper and sweeter than self-centered desires. And so the thing that will bring Paul joy is to see this church growing to be more like Christ. Paul is telling us that a life worthy of the gospel is a life anchored in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And belief in this leads to obedience through Christ, to Christ, through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And look, it would be real easy for me to say, do this or don't do this, but there's more to it than that. Like if all Christianity is to you is a list of things that you have to do or that you can't do, I promise you, you will get discouraged and burn out. Christ has died to save you. And Christ wants your heart. 
And Paul says that this church devoted to Christ would fulfill his joy because Christ desires us and desires a relationship with us. So let's see how this text ends. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his, only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul tells us that we need to be humble in service to the church. This type of humility is opposed to pride. Pride looks like trying to make ourselves look better or feel better. Pride looks like putting others down. Also, pride looks like not being very kind to ourselves. Anybody else? Just me? Cool. Um, pride can take on many, many forms. It can look like thinking too highly of yourself. And that's an easy one to pick out. Pride can look like entitlement. Thinking we deserve something we're not getting. Or thinking we don't deserve what we're getting. Or thinking we deserve something better than what we're getting. Pride also looks like thinking less of yourself than you ought to. I've learned in my own life that any insecurity in my life is a form of prideful arrogance. And God is trying to root that out of me because when I'm in those moments, I am functioning like I don't trust God enough. Therefore, making myself the God of my own life, and that is not a role I'm called to or can fulfill and will always fail me. When I function like that, when we function out of our pride, we are saying, God, I don't trust you. But when our pride gives way, we become more humble. And when our pride gives way, we can serve Christ and the body. Paul encourages us to pursue Christ-like humility. The opposite of pride and the opposite of conceit is the person of Jesus, who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, he made himself nothing in order that we could be given everything in him. Followers of Jesus, following Jesus' example, we should ask ourselves if we are seeking the approval of others or living for Christ in this way. Am I concerned about other people or am I only concerned about myself? John Stott says that at every single stage of our Christian development, in every sphere of our Christian, Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Therefore, for the good of our own souls, for the unity in the church, and for the good of our witness, we should want to grow in humility. Only when we possess the grace and the mercy and the humility we, will we be able to care for one another in the way in which Christ is calling us to? Humility is important when seeking unity because it's Christ-like to count others more important than yourself. Humility is important when pursuing unity because we serve one another in the way that Christ has served us. And it's hard, right? But it's also hard 
maybe even impossible. I don't know. I don't have enough data points, but it might be impossible to be divided and in constant conflict with one another when we are serving one another the way that Christ has served us. When we serve one another with the affection that Christ has for us. And Christ being our head, when we serve one another this way with the same affection that he has for us, we grow in humility. And we grow in love for one another as well. This is how we grow in humility and therefore live lives worthy of the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel is a life lived in freedom. It's a life lived in freedom found in Christ. A life worthy of the gospel is not a life lived to your sinful desires. A life worthy of the gospel is not a life lived in fear. A life worthy of the gospel is not a life lived in striving to try to satisfy and appease some angry God that you have concocted in your mind that is always disappointed with you and sounds like your dad. A life worthy of the gospel is a life lived in freedom. Freedom given to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God to love and worship Jesus. And in order to live a life worthy of the gospel, we remember the cross. There's no room for pride or arrogance at the cross. Because we all need it. Because none of us are worthy to receive it. None of us are worthy to receive this forgiveness and this mercy. And yet, Christ went to the cross to rescue and redeem us. And this should humble us. And it also should move us to worship because we have a God who wants us and who has forgiven us. And then that frees us from all of the negative things we think and feel about ourselves and all the lies we tell ourselves. And it frees us from our hostility towards one another. We grow in humility as we read God's word and when we reflect on the cross because it shows us just who we are in Christ. Sinners saved by grace. Sinners who have received his mercy. Sinners who have been set free by this wondrous love. Living lives worthy of the gospel calling means that you are now a citizen of heaven. A citizen of a coming kingdom. You have gone from being a slave to your sin to a son or a daughter of the most high God. Sinners who have been saved. We can now rest in his goodness and his kindness to us in the midst of all circumstances. So live a life worthy of the calling that you have received by receiving God's forgiveness through faith and repentance and resting in your sonship. Let's pray.